kids are invited to kids' church in the library. This is one of those um, strange Sundays for me that I, next week we start the book of Numbers, this week we end our series in the Creed, and it's Trinity Sunday. All three things add up into like a 45-minute, hour-and-a-half mat sermon, and so the temptation is to pull away from that edge and not jump off of it, um, because I'm thinking ahead as best as I can, thinking to the past about what we maybe lived and went through with, with sort of studying the Creed, and then trying to wrap up this series in which we have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And one of the things that ties those together is this I believe statement from the Creed. I believe in the Father, the Almighty, the Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. And I believe in the Holy Spirit are the three. Brian, Brian texted me this week, but it, if you haven't noticed, the three things are Trinitarian in their core. You believe these three things. Each I believe is preceded by this. I believe in God the Father. I believe in His Son. I believe in His Spirit. Um, and these things sort of tie together this Trinity Sunday for us of the God who wants to be with us. There's a Christian Century, a Christian magazine, ran this thing about how to describe the gospel in seven words. One of my favorite ones, actually one of the funniest ones, is by an Old Testament professor who used six, and he said, because God rested on the seventh, which is a very nerdy, uh, maybe only seminarians laugh at that joke. Um, but then the other one was, God refuses to be God without us, which is one of these things we find in the creed, is that, is that God refuses to be God without us, which is why he provides forgiveness of sins. He provides a resurrection for the body, and he invites us into a life everlasting. God refuses to be God without us. And this, this, this um, study of the creed, I, I think is what I was thinking, is if it raises a flag in the world for us to say, I believe these things. Gives us a firm spot to stand on, to say, this is what I believe. When, when Brian's mom subbed in to preach for me, she really liked one of the books that I didn't use as much, which was um, What Christians Ought to Believe. Um, and that's uh, Michael Bird's book on the creed. And it helps us also find this place of what this is what Christians ought to believe, and it gives us a generous field to find other Christians in it. It's a very generous field. There's, there's not a lot of words in the creed. There's 12 petitions. And so it helps us discern in that way too. But one of the things I wanted to go back and look at before we move forward is this, this creed of the age, this moralistic therapeutic deist creed, which is a word uh, I've been using occasionally throughout the sermon. And I know that I'm repeating myself, so don't think, oh, Matt's not aware that he's taught us this already. Um, but I find that it's helpful to, these are, as a concept, it's something I churn over within myself often to think, if this is the creed of the age, how does the church respond to it? I believe in a God who ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. I believe God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught by the Bible and by most religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. I believe God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. I believe good people go to heaven when they die. This is the creed that, that came out of this National Youth and Religion Survey. And what, what Kenda Dean, one of the authors who helped interview people for the creed, she didn't write the study in the end, is she said this, and we heard this the first week, is the problem doesn't seem to be churches are teaching young people badly, 
but that we're doing an exceedingly good job of teaching youth what, really, what we really believe, namely that Christianity is not a big deal, that God requires little, and the church is a helpful social institution filled with nice people for the most part. She goes on to say that if churches practice MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, in the name of Christianity, then getting teenagers to church more often is not the solution. Conceivably, it could make things worse. A formidable uh, solution, and, and she goes on. And um, one of the things is I share about this, and, and I get invited to speak at conferences with clergy and other pastors. And one of the things that I often share about, they ask me to share about, is moralistic therapeutic deism, because it's primarily only youth pastors who are sort of aware of this phenomenon at the moment. Um, it came out of research around youth, but what they found is it's still largely what reverberates in churches. It's, it's the challenge of senior pastors at the moment. So I go to these things and share about them, and most pastors, they go, oh, I noticed that thing. If you read the article in the, in the Defiance Weekly this week, she calls it a, a symbiote, uh, Man, some kid who knows comic books could help me out here. Uh, what takes over Venom, like Spider-Man, is something that like morphs. Uh, this is lost. Um, it, it 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 takes over something and morphs it into something it's not. It's a it's sort of a fake thing. And and lots of pastors, when you walk through that, they go, "Oh, this is this is true." And it's interesting when I've I've presented it in more progressive realms. They always tell me, uh, how can progressive Christianity also deal with this? And I always tell them, you first have to find it as a problem. Um, and I'm not sure it's as big of a problem in progressive Christianity as it is in, in moderate or conservative or what other forms. There are places where it is, but, I, but when you look at the creed and I ask them to rethink this, is what's wrong for you here? I mean, it's that people don't come to church, but, but it's still predominantly like you want people to be good and nice. You have a generous view of other religions in the Bible. You, you sort of hold out these things before people. And almost every time, I've never had anybody actually say, uh, they, they self-reflect. I've never had anybody say, well, I think you're wrong for that reason. They self-reflect and they go, okay, so maybe we need also to reclaim a more robust understanding of what it means to be Christian. Now, to be fair, the conservative side of this has all sorts of problems as well, primarily falling into the moralistic side of moralistic therapeutic deism. But when you describe it there, they, they sort of go, oh, we need to do better. Um, and there's all sorts of things we can see wrong with this. And then they have a different bag to unpack as well. But that's sort of what we have. But as I was rereading stuff over moralistic therapeutic deism this week, this is where I'm ending a series, starting a series, living in this make. It was this, this image of a map came to mind for me, is that the creed can serve for us here at Defiance Church as a map to sort of know where we are in the world. And, and thanks to Google, this is the universal side of your location and a map, um, which I was thinking about. 20 years ago, this would have made no sense to anyone. They would have been like, it's an abstract owl, um, uh, which you can see. I mean, it does look like an abstract owl. Um, but this, we all know, is oh, it's a map. Um, uh, but what Kenda says near the middle of her book is that these toolkits we have, they helped us construct certain kinds of self, mark us as members of certain groups, provide identity and image for certain worldviews, and give us skills and habits so we fit in particular social worlds. But they also limit us. We could choose, we could use more culture than we do, and we seldom add new tools to our toolkits unless someone we trust shows us how. Every religious convert goes through this process when joining a faith community, and a religious formation involves teaching young people, all people, how to use religious tools in a way that are distinctive to that community. 
thereby establishing young people as members who belong to a particular faith tradition. And then she continues with, with sort of what they found is that highly devoted young people seem adept at, at, at using at least four cultural tools in a way that mark them as members of their tradition. First, they confess their tradition's creed or God story. This is the purpose of this series, is to bring us to confessing our tradition's creed and God story. Second, they belong to a community that enacts the God story. This is our second mission as we hear this story. It's not to just be, oh, that's nice, I believe it, but it's supposed to take up residency in our lives and be something we can live out of. They feel called to the story to contribute to a larger purpose. They have hope for the future promised by this story, I believe, in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. In addition, these young people seem to have families and churches that model convincingly that these tools matter. Something is at stake in using these cultural tools as we do, and something is lost in not using them at all. So my last sort of overall view for the creed, I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is to sort of say, how can this serve as a map for us in a world in which we have this sort of larger creed that's always trying to pull us down? And the, the one thing that I find hardest about it, this moralistic therapeutic theism, it's not an easy idea to attack. God does care about us. God does want some moral performance, it seems like, in Christians, if you read the Bible. God does seem to have a care for individuals. And so it's not always been clear. Me and my friend, when we were writing youth resources, always struggled with, like, how do you get after this particular kind of beast that no matter what you seem to do to it, it's immune to it and can just absorb it into itself? And I think that the creed helps and that it at least blankets a larger thing that maybe perhaps can go over it. Instead of trying to, to shoot at the animal to kill it, the beast, which is, sometimes I don't think my metaphor is out. It's not one I would use often, a hunting metaphor. But instead of that, you, you try to consume it into a larger story. Maybe that's the better solution to this. Instead of saying, you know, we need to push all that off and it's wrong, is we actually try to place it within the larger context that adds more to it, that fills it out better that says that these are ways of doing that. And perhaps this map can help us in the world, particularly as we think of passing on the faith to those young people gathered amongst us, which isn't just the ones here gathered today, but the ones on the way and the ones that are in the nursery. You know, What does it mean for our community to actually be emboldened against that thing? So that's that. The next is the I believes that we have for today. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. This is an uh, interesting one because it's kind of, you wouldn't think of this, it's a late arrival to the creed. And so when I was a youth minister, I had these youth read the Apostles' Creed or the Nicaea Creed before we began study each week. And I, the thing I pointed out to them is think about how they define what's important to Christianity. Because if you were to poll people today what's important, I think forgiveness of sins would be near the top of the list. But it's, it's interesting, this one in that creed we read way back in the first sermon, um, where they're asking the baptized person, do you believe these things? And each time they're immersed in the water, what, what you find is the forgiveness of sins is not mentioned there. It's sort of a late addition. What happens is the church, as it forms in the ancient world, it's this agent of transformation in individuals' lives to train them in a new way of being. And it believes and moves into that spot. These people have been forgiven, but they've also been empowered and given life and moved into a new place. 
But what happens around the third century is persecution starts to overtake the church. And what happens is individual Christians and priests begin to offer um, incense to the Romans' gods, which they didn't do for a long time. And so the question was, is do we rebaptize these people? Do we bring them back and recatechize them? Do we kick them out permanently? Have they permanently renounced their faith and it's no longer good? And what happens in the third century, and this wins the day, although it is a contest, is that no, the church actually believes in the forgiveness of sins, both before you were baptized and after you were baptized, that the church is, is called to be this body that can believe in its forgiveness within its own walls. This is where you find um, St. Augustine often in his sermon says this thing, is that we must never despair of anyone. I think is a wise word for the church today as we gather. Is, is the church today always tries to exist in the struggle between either a school for saints, which I think fits this ancient vision of the church, is that it's the school to make us into holy things for God. And then it also has this image of that the church is a field hospital for sinners. And we exist between these po two poles, and they're really hard to hold both together in one community. How are we being constructed up into the image of the body of Christ, the image of God, into ways in which we are transformed? This school for sinners, or for saints. How are we to gather the brokenhearted and the wounded, the people who Jesus encountered in his ministry, in a way that they too are transformed, but that we are not begrudging towards them? I think that if we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, it helps us settle into a place that, that while there are grander projects that we move through, we also believe that we shouldn't begrudge anyone gathered with us. We believe that God has done the work definitively through Jesus Christ to provide forgiveness for our sins. And the later creed, Nicaea, links this to baptism. I believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It's through being immersed in this water that we receive this forgiveness. And, and Luther had this helpful phrase of seeing it as a sign and a signal in our own lives. It brings us back to something. Um, uh, uh, Bart takes this in a different direction writing the centuries. We can feel far from the spirit, and this is in the spirit part of the creed. We can feel far from God, but if we can remember that we're baptized, it creates this space in which calls us back to that that can never be far to us, God's spirit. God's presence can never be too far. It, it gets us in a place of belonging. If we recall to ourselves what it means to be baptized and to be brought into this new life. I believe in the resurrection of the body. The creed here turns to looking forward. Each one of these things before here sort of could exist in the past or present tense, but I believe in the forthcoming resurrection of the body, which came from this beautiful passage that Chris read for us today. is This, this forthcoming, actually forgiveness of sins was in there. All three of these are in there. Um, that, that we believe in this resurrection of the body. From the beginning to end, the creed, from the creator to Jesus being born of a virgin, which was um, to the Gnostics, women were... Um, some of the Gnostic writers thought that women got to become men when they come get to heaven. Um, so this is a, a good, renounced idea in Christianity. Whenever people are like, you know, I'm in the Gnostic Christianity because I think it might be more pro-woman, that's definitely not true. Don't believe anybody who says that. Um, unless becoming a man when you get to heaven sounds like good news, then, then um, 
go for it. But I think it's bad news. What happens is, is that Christianity throughout this whole creed has been valuing the material world in the midst of a world that devalues the material world. Christianity in this creed calls forth the value of what's material. Now Christians, as we know, haven't done the best at that always. See, this, this I believe in the resurrection of the body sounds different than I believe I'll go to heaven when I die. I believe in the resurrection of the body is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, that someday a trumpet will sound and all the bodies will be raised up. And it will be more like a seed is to a tree, or Eugene Peterson's phrase, tomatoes. Um, is in, you look at a seed in Paul's mind, and it doesn't look like a tree doesn't look like anything that could provide you tomatoes. And yet this seed is this body is the ways in which we will be raised into a new body. Now there's a, a theologian, uh, N.T. Wright, has two memorable phrases about this. He says that um, it's not that I, I don't worry about life after death, but I'm more concerned about life after life after death. That there's, a, there's life after this. That as we see in the book of Revelation, there's this new creation in this new world, which leads N.T. Wright to his other memorable phrase, which I think is funnier, is heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. God's goal is to restore this world and this creation, this new heavens and earth, and to merge them together. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. We are to be raised in this body into new life. And, and Paul, uh, people don't like Paul, but uh, Eugene Peterson captured in there, and it's in the Greek too, is that like, I may never understand this, which is modesty in our cultural imagination we don't think of as Paul. But Paul says, these are images to help us understand which that which is ununderstandable to us. And yet we affirm this belief, this truth, that we believe in the resurrection of the body. One of the, the lines that I used last week from a friend was that the, the spirit befriends the body in the creed. The spirit doesn't look at the body and say, well, I hope that I can get you out of that prison someday. But it says, I befriend it so that that can be raised up into new life. And we have this possibility to have this eternal kind of life thing in the moment, which brings us to the next thing is that I believe in the life everlasting. It's an interesting one to think about because uh, somebody pointed out as I was reading this week that we think about this often in terms of, of quantity. I believe in the life everlasting. More and more life forever. Living forever. Which I think is true. But one of the things they challenge Christians today to think about is what does it mean to think about the life everlasting in terms of quality? There will be a quality to this type of life that goes beyond what we experience in the present body will be raised without sin and suffering and guilt. Uh, what was the things he said? Death, sin, death, guilt. There were three things. Uh, sin and death, I think. Um, yeah, death was one for sure. That will be raised in a body that is no longer subject to those things. This is a body that's healed. A body in which uh, every tear is wiped um, and there is no more darkness in this new city. This body exists in a different way. It's this life everlasting in which we are called into. Into this hope we engage into the world. And this, this whole thing, this last part, I think is helpful for that seed analogy, is that we exist in our lives, this is a phrase from Calvin, in seed time. 
Our lives are seed time in which we are buried in the ground. And what happens in this new creation is we are sprouted up into that which we couldn't be by the mercy and friendship of God. The God is one who lifts us up out of that. So to end with, we have this, this Trinity Sunday thing. This I believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And I wanted to come back to this quote because this is one I think about often. It's on the back of the bulletin today from Robert Jensen. But he says, there is one slogan-like phrase. And he's, at this moment, I've said, he's complaining that Christians have tried to use slogans to sort of substitute for what God does. And so we say, Jesus saves. And it's, it's basically, think of anything that could say you're a Christian on a bumper sticker. Those are slogans which don't seem to do the work today that they might have done in the 1950s or the 1960s, when the world was more Christianized. But he does say that there is one slogan-like praise that is precisely a maximally compressed version of the one God's particular story. This is the revealed name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is thus no accident at all that in our postmodern situation, the struggle between realistic faith and religious wool gathering settles into a struggle over this name. The triune name evokes God as three actors of his one story and places the three in their actual narrative relation. Substitutes do not and cannot do this. Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier, for example, neither narrates nor specifically names, for creating, redeeming, and sanctifying are timelessly actual aspects of God's activity. God does those things. He isn't those things. And more, however, things that all gods, punitive or not, somehow do. In the postmodern situation, and this is the part I think is worth cherishing and holding near for us, because I think it's deep, I hope it gets deep into the roots of our church, and it's been growing in the roots of our church since we started. In the postmodern situation, we will easily recognize congregations and agencies that know the world they inhabit by their love and fidelity to the triune name. And we will recognize antiquated Protestantism by its, and he is a Protestant, by its uneasiness with the triune name. This is the name that we end our services with. Praise God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we do it every Sunday, is to show that we're comfortable with this threefold relation. It's not enough to explain the Trinity or to believe in the Trinity, but to know God as these three actors inhabiting our story. And, and I think Christianity today, particularly of the low church reality, has this, this struggle too to say, the tree's too complex, or it's a word that's not in the Bible, and throws itself off and becomes this antiquated type of Protestantism. But to claim this, to claim this story, to know this way in which God's relationship works in the world gives us a home. For it is whom this God, whom we live and move and have our being. There's a classic image of the Trinity that I didn't pull up, which is um, the three visitors visiting Abraham in, in the desert. Uh, these three visitors who show up and they're actually angels or God. That it's The Old Testament is kind of iffy on it. Um, but there are three visitors and they're sitting there. I should have put the image up. And one's hand is over communion and the two heads are tilted towards the Father. And so it's the Father, Son, and the Spirit sitting there. All sorts of problems with any analogy you come up for the tree. They look like three separate gods. But one of the ways in which the table is set in this image is that the one is on the left, the one is at the right, and the one is in the middle. And one of the ways the table is set at this image is that there's invitation for us to come and sit at the table. It's open on its front end so that we can move into that space. 
but through the Lord's Supper, through communion, through this, that we become those who dine with God. Or in the words of Hebrews, entertain angels without even knowing it. But this image calls to mind that, that God is there willing to meet us in this form. And it's this praise and this space that we can sort of live uh, doxological lives, lives of praise to this God. Uh, that song at the end is doxology. Doxology means praise. We can live lives of doxology in a way that is praise reverberating in our body to this God that calls us to believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Let us pray. God, you have gifted the church with your spirit. And in its wisdom, it has guided us to things like the Apostles' Creed, things like the songs we sing, things like the collection into the canon, things like the gift of the Bible we read together. And so we ask for here at this church how this history of your spirit working throughout sinners and those who have been forgiven to make truth in the world. May this creed expand in our worship. May this creed expand in our lives. May it become something that can overtake the creeds of the age that would pull us down and take us different ways. May it lift us up out of ourselves and set us on a new plane in which we can believe in the resurrection of this place, the forgiveness we now receive, and the life everlasting. We ask all this and we say amen at the end of it. We sign our name to it in this a amen. We may sign this in a way that says we hope that we can believe this. We may sign it in a way that says it's been decided. We may sign it in our earnest attempts to live it. But so God, it is up for you to come and to seal this for us and to help it animate our lives in ways in which we can witness to the reign that you promise for us in the kingdom of heaven. We ask all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.